Let's pray. Lord, help us this morning to throw up our hands in submission and praise you. And say, how could it ever be that you gave your life for ours? That you are so great and perfect and holy. And yet somehow in your greatness there is grace. And we, though we are sinners, can fall before you and enter your presence this morning. And so I ask you that you'd help us to do that today as we open your word. That you would move us, not just stir us or lift our emotions, but that you would move our souls and our lives and our actions toward you. And that you give us grace once again this morning. I ask that as the choir sang, that you would help us to see you one more time this morning, that you would help tell us of your mercy one more time this morning, and that you would help us to see you in a way that we need to see you this morning. And we ask, because it is only by your strength and power and glory that it can be done in your precious name. Amen. If you would, take your Bible and look at the book of John again this morning. We are in chapter 12, continuing there from where we picked up or left off last week. We will be there again this morning. And you'll find your place in John chapter 12. And while you're doing that, I want to read you a definition. That's exciting. When the teachers do that at school, the students perk up and listen attentively. And I uh, expect that we would do the same this morning. <coughs> but I want to use, I want, I want to just put a word before you today that uh, we can think about throughout our uh, time in God's Word this morning. It's not a word that we find in our text, as far as I can see. It's not a word that we find in Scripture. Uh, but is a word that is fitting for this morning. The, the, the topic or the idea that I want to talk about this morning is the paradox of Jesus. You say, whoa, paradox. You've already, uh, what are we going to talk about? It sounds like uh, the weatherman's coming on or something like that. But let me give you this definition. A paradox, according to the Oxford Dictionary, it could be any dictionary, but Oxford sounds so much better. <clears throat> a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. A statement or proposition that, despite its sound reasoning from acceptable premises, leads to a conclusion that seems senseless, logically unacceptable, or self-contradictory. A situation, person, or thing that combines contradictory features or qualities, yet is found to be true. And if you think about it this morning... The story of Christ is a paradox. It is something that seems totally unfathomably against what our minds think is reasonable. But when we look and see God's Word, we find that it is true. When we hear a song saying, how could it ever be? 
His life for mine. There is a paradox in that. Because His life is holy and righteous and pure and blameless and precious and merciful and perfect. And my life is full of failings and disturbing sins and unrighteousness and unholiness and apathy toward a relationship with my God. Yet, God was willing to allow my life to be exchanged for Christ's. That is a paradox. And then you're going to find this morning as we come to our text, it is the familiar passage to us, often preached, uh, usually sometimes the week before Easter, it is when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He is entering this triumphant entry <coughs> into Jerusalem. He is coming to finish His business. And you're going to see that He rides in, in a way, as a king, but also as a humble servant. There is a paradox there. He is coming to bring life to these people, but He's going to do it by His own death. There is a paradox there. He is coming to call a kingdom to Himself, not that He will rule and reign physically, but that He will guide and drive spiritually. There is paradox there. As He kind of comes in, He is not going to set up and establish some kingdom in Jerusalem. He's going to set up a kingdom in heaven. He is not going to conquer by warfare. He's going to conquer by grace and mercy. There is a paradox to the story of Christ. But it is one that we should be thankful for. And as we think about Jesus, there's a lot of things that different people think about Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes I feel like I should clarify if I'm uh, speaking to a particular person or bringing uh, something in particular up and referring to Jesus. I said, maybe we should slow down and, and go back and talk. Make sure we're talking about the same Jesus uh, together, that we're on the same page with who Jesus really is and what, what you speak of when you speak of Jesus. There's a lot of people that believe a lot of different things about Jesus. Did you know that the Jews, not necessarily ethnic Jews, but those who claim Judaism as a religion, they believe in the historical Jesus, but they just believe He was another failed or false messianic claim, one that would point to a perfect Messiah coming, but not the perfect Messiah Himself. Do you know that Muslims believe in Jesus? In fact, in the Quran, He's called Isa. He's considered to be one of the greatest prophets that God ever sent to mankind. Hindus regard uh, Jesus as the incarnation of a god named Vishnu. And uh, in case you were curious, he comes to the world in the cycling forms of a fish, a dwarf, or a human being. Atheists and agnostics believe in a historical Jesus because you can't deny that he lived. There's too much proof there. But they believe that he's a good teacher, maybe even a life to be emulated, but not someone to believe in as a Savior. Unbelievers, those who don't believe Jesus in any sort of religious way, sort of look at Him as a character like we might in history. A good man, somebody maybe that there's followed, but there's no talk about eternity and there's no talk about any sort of relevance for our spiritual lives. But there's another belief, not just Muslims and Jews and atheists, agnostics and unbelievers, but there is a nominal Christian belief about Jesus, a cultural Christian belief, if you want to say it that way. Many of us fall into that belief sometimes incidentally, sometimes accidentally, and 
sometimes just flat subconsciously, but on purpose. They believe that Jesus is a good add-on to life, but not necessarily the preeminent goal of this life. There's a lot of different people that believe a lot of different things about Christ, but nominal Christianity, by name only, I say I am a Christian, kind of believe in Jesus as an errand boy almost. I am sick, so you need to heal me. I have this need, so you need to bring it to me. I'm going to go to church to appease you, but when I have a need, you, you should be there when I ring for you. It's kind of how we treat Christ sometimes. But Jesus did not come to support our lives. He came to ask us to surrender to His. He did not come to build up our lives and make them better. He came to request, not to request, but to demand us to forsake our own lives and give ourselves to Him. And we're going to find that this morning in our passage in John chapter 12. And if you would look in verse number 12, we'll begin reading there. Jesus has just been anointed by Mary there in Bethany. And it says Lazarus was with him. And we left off last week talking about the fact that <coughs> as when many people follow Christ completely and wholly and bring others to him, they wanted to kill Lazarus too. They wanted to mistreat Lazarus because what he represented for Christ. And the same is true of our lives. When we serve God passionately, there's others that will not endorse it. There's others that will not enjoy it. And look at verse 12. What happens? And, and I, I like that in verse 12, it tells us, it says, on the next day. So right after Mary anoints Jesus' feet. Remember he said, she's doing this for my burial, but nobody really understood what he meant by that, by, by their death. And that's what Jesus meant. I am, I am starting right now. This is sort of a consecration for the end of my life. And on the very next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of of the Lord. If you were to look there, maybe at your index or in the middle of your Bible, there, this is almost pro, this is a prophesy. This is what is coming in verse number 14. is a song that they would sing of the coming Messiah. Verse 14, And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat there on, and as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy kingdom cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. And these things understood not his disciples at the first. And if you would like to, this is going to be one of the phrases that we focus on a little bit today. You can underline that phrase. These things understood not his disciples at the first. What does that mean of his disciples? They did not understand who Jesus really was. They did not understand why Jesus was there. And they did not understand what Jesus was going to do. And we're going to look at our own lives and see that there is often times when we don't understand who Jesus is and we don't understand what Jesus is trying to do in our lives and we don't seek out what Jesus' goal for our lives is, we're so focused on what's going on here on this earth like His disciples were. They wanted Him to set up a physical kingdom in Jerusalem, but Jesus was trying to say, I'm going to conquer sin throughout the universe. His idea was much bigger than their physical ideas and so they did not understand it. But when, verse 16, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. <coughs> the people, therefore, 
that Lazarus was uh, that Lazarus was with or excuse me that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the, his grave and raised him up from the dead bear record so they're there spreading this story of Lazarus has risen from the dead and Jesus is coming to Jerusalem he just did this amazing thing and then look at verse number 18 for this cause the people also met him for that they heard that he had done this miracle that particular raising Lazarus from the dead the Pharisees therefore said among themselves perceive ye how we prevail nothing we are getting nothing done against Christ we are not winning, is what the Pharisees say. Why? It says, behold, the world is gone after him. He says, everyone, they're just so disturbed. Remember their thought back in chapter 11 and beginning of 12? They said, if we don't stop Jesus, the Romans are going to come. They're going to take our influence. They're going to take our, uh, our statehood as Israel. They're going to remove our influence. They're going to take away our king. They're not going to let it. They're going to make us just like everyone else in the Roman Empire. We have to stop Jesus. And so they're saying again, we can't. Why can we not stop him? Everyone is going after Jesus. And look at verse 20. And here's a beautiful pivot point or picture of this chapter. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. This really would have bothered the Pharisees. Because now it's not only Jewish people going after this Jewish man. It is everyone in this world. Greeks, Romans, pagans, Jews. It says that they were among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came before to Philip, <clears throat> which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, what a beautiful statement. Sir, we would see Jesus. There is a group of people in this world, and there is a lost and dying world that are saying to us, church, sirs, ladies, landmark, we would see Jesus. Though they would not say it with their lips, and though they will not say that phrase, they're longing to find something that will fix their lives, the hole that is in their heart. They're longing to find something deeper that they know is missing. And they say, sir, we would see Jesus. And then look at verse 22. And Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And ever want an interesting study? Look at Andrew. It seems like every time Andrew's mentioned, he's bringing someone else along to Jesus. He brings his brother and uh, the young lad, he brings all these people to Christ. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them saying. Now, when the Greeks came to Jesus, Jesus could have done a lot of things. He could have done a miracle. He could have uh, presented himself in some way or whatever. But it's interesting that he answers them with words. He answers them with teaching. The same that he does with us today. He gives us his word. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Notice this is a different tone than he's had the last few weeks. He does not run away when there's a large crowd wanting to make him king. He does not say, I'm going to go away so that it don't cause a disturbance and it hinders what we're trying to do. They're not trying to kill me, and this is an uproar. He embraces it now. It's a total shift from the first 11 chapters of John where he will present himself and teach and heal. And when the crowd gets to a size that it hinders that ministry, he pulls away. Now he turns that and he says, The hour is here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto, eternal, unto life eternal. Remember, we were talking about that word paradox. Here is one. If a man loves his life, he's going to lose it. If he's willing to lose his life 
for Jesus' sake. He's going to keep it. Look at verse 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. So you see another paradox. Serving brings honor. Verse number 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Jesus' willingness in his uh, humility and his submission is a picture of what our lives should be. And then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, said it thundered. And others said an angel spake to him. And Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I, uh, if I be, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Let's pray one last time. And ask God to bless His Word. Lord, help us as we try to understand this passage for for this morning, where the Son of Man, the King of the universe, the coming Messiah, must be lifted up in sacrifice for us. Help us to see the paradox that this does not make sense to our minds, but we're glad that it is true. And we thank you for it in your precious and holy name. Amen. I'd like you to see this morning as we start, we're going to kind of approach this text a little differently than even we have some the last few weeks. We're going to look at a couple truths that we find in the text. Then we're going to try to illustrate it by putting ourselves into it. Because this is a passage that we're very familiar with what happens. And so we're going to try to place ourselves into this culture and what they may have been thinking and experiencing and then what we may be thinking and experiencing in our own lives as we try to follow Christ as well. There's two particular movements in this passage that I want you to think about and see. You, you have the first one is there's a movement toward Jesus. And where do we find that? It says in verse uh, number 20, there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. They said, sir, we would see Jesus. So these Greek people, now why is that a big deal? Is the Bible like just naming these things out there? Is it differentiating between people groups? Is the Bible somehow sort of prejudiced toward one and not the other? No, it's making a big deal about it because this is a shift in what has been going on through all of history to this point for the coming Messiah and the one and true God. Because for years, for years, it was the access of the Jewish people and the Jewish high priest and the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion. Were there those that believed in God outside of Judaism and the nation of Israel? Sure, there were. But the world outside of that was a dark place full of dark and misunderstanding. And so now, all of a sudden, with light that has come into that darkness. Remember in John chapter 1, it says that the earth or the world was dark and Light came into the world and the darkness didn't perceive it. They didn't understand it. And now that light is shining through Christ. And it says these Greek people, these citizens of the Roman Empire, these people from outside Israel's culture, outside Israel's line and family, outside of Israel's belief system, people from outside of that are coming to Jesus. And we know that Jesus is God Himself. He's the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. And so for one of the first times that we see in the Bible, and one of the first times in history, we have outside of God's people are approaching God Himself. 
And it is a beautiful picture of people moving toward God. And in this world today, regardless of how bad things may look or how bad things seem or how much we disagree with society or culture or other countries or our own or governments or whatever it may be, there are people that have access to, all people have access to and the ability to come to Christ. And that is a good thing. It does not matter what nation you're born in. It does not matter what neighborhood you're born in. It does not matter what culture you're from. It doesn't matter what your parents believe or religion is. None of those things matter. All men can come to Christ. And I think it's worth, if it was worth being mentioned in Scripture here, it's worth us paying attention to that from outside of those that supposedly, quote-unquote, deserved to have access to God, you have people coming, and through Christ, they have access to God. And that is a paradox that should influence our lives. Because I, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, I don't know that there's very many full people of full Jewish line in our church or in our room. We have some that have uh, different parts from that culture, but I am glad that as a group of people from all sorts of heritage and ancestry and places in the world, we can come to Christ. And that movement there is impactful. But notice that there's another movement, and it's a movement away from Jesus. The Pharisees have said they have fully and completely rejected Him. And the interesting thing is, they were the ones that had probably the most opportunity to come to Christ for who He was. They were the ones that knew the law. They were the ones that knew God's Word and had it memorized. They were the ones that did righteous things and lived holy lives. They, out of everyone, should have had the easiest passage, right pathway to come to know Christ as Savior, but they rejected Him because what they claimed was their own holiness and their own righteousness and their own system and their own belief that they had, in a way, created and embellished to the point that they could not see that the Savior was in front of them, and they moved away from Him. Those that were lost and undeserving, but with an open mind, came to Christ. Those that were religious and self-righteous looked at Christ and said, I can do it on my own. The same is true even in our culture and even in our Christian lives. This morning, who are the ones that are going to embrace Christ and move toward Him in the way that they should and have a deep and passionate relationship with Christ? It is those that will set aside all that they've ever had in their lives, religion, thought processes, deeds, accomplishments, successes, and lay them all down at Christ's feet and say, you and you only can save me. You and you only can help me grow. Like we mentioned, Jesus is not an embellishment of my already good life. He is not a coat of wax on the outside of my pretty car to kind of just polish it and say, it was already a nice car, but now it looks really good. Jesus is not that for our lives. He brings us from death and gives us life. Dead things do nothing on their own. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. If something is dead, it can't do anything. Christ says that we are dead in our sins, but only given life through Christ. 
There's a paradox here, and you have some moving toward and some moving away. But notice what Jesus says about himself. We mentioned what Muslims say about Jesus or Jews say about Jesus. We mentioned at the beginning what agnostics or atheists or even nominal Christians say about Jesus. But what does Jesus say about himself? That's what I want to really think about and focus on this morning. That is why the disciples in verse number 16 says, These things understood not his disciples at the first. Why did his disciples not understand? Is it because Jesus did not teach them? No. We've seen just the past few weeks, he taught them over and over and over exactly what he was. But they wouldn't see Jesus for what he said he was. They wanted to make Jesus what they thought he should be. They say, he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to set up a physical kingdom. We're going to rule and reign. We're going to be free from the Roman Empire. We're going to be able to walk freely in our own country. We're not going to have to pay taxes to a man that we have never seen. We're not going to be uh, lorded over by this empire state. Jesus is going to set us free. But Jesus, for three and a half years now, has said, that is not why I'm here. And there are things in our lives that we think Jesus is doing or that he should be doing. We think that there are things that Jesus is to us. But when we read his word, we find that he is saying, I'm not any of those things at all. I want to be something totally different to you. I'm not here to just help you and support you. I'm here to ask you to submit to me. I'm not here to make your life better. I'm here to give you life and to give it more abundantly. He gives the example in verse 23. The hour is come and the Son of Man should be glorified. That word Son of Man is not what we would think of as like a humble term. Son of Man is used all through the Old Testament to talk about the fact that there is a man coming from God Himself, God Himself to be the Messiah of all men. And so when he says the son, the hour is here, the son of man, he's, he is claiming right there, I am that Messiah. I am God come to rule and reign in this world and to save men from their sins. But look at verse 24. He gives us another what we would call a paradox. And we know that we've had our kind of harvest time this in our country, at least in our uh, climate and area of the world recently it says, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Jesus here speaking about even his own death. He gives the example. He says, if you have a stalk of wheat and it sits there by itself, there's not going to be any more wheat. But if you notice wheat that grows up in the summer, is perfectly green and deep and lush, and it is beautiful, right? But then what, what color does it turn? Brown. Why does it turn brown? If you know things about plants and different things, green means it's alive for most plants, right? And some that we try to keep in our houses and homes, and we know that it's time to go to Lowe's and get a new one because we couldn't keep the last one alive when it turns from green to brown because it dies. And Jesus says, if wheat doesn't change from green to brown, it can sit there beautifully all summer long and all year long, but it will never bear fruit. But it must die, and when it dies, it gives up its seed, it falls off, and more seed is produced, and then there is more life from that. And he's giving his own picture of his own life. He says, 
I am righteous. I am holy. My life is perfect. My life is blameless. My life is beautiful on this earth. I don't deserve to die. Jesus did not deserve death. It says, for the wages or the punishment of sin is death, right? So only for sin there is death. Jesus did not sin, therefore he did not deserve to die. Yet Jesus says, if I remain sinless and alive, no one else can come with me. No one else can be a son or a daughter of God. No one else can inherit the kingdom of heaven. No one else can know God the way that God created them to know Him. But if I die, if I give myself, there can be more life. I don't know about you, but I am grateful that Jesus gave Himself for me, though He did not deserve to die. He died for me. Jesus is teaching us something here. He is not what we often think that He is. You think about if you go back to the different things that they said He was, they say He is a good teacher, He is a miracle worker. They said He is a prophet. Well, a prophet speaks for someone else, right? But Jesus here says, I am the Son, I am the Son of Man. He's not claiming to be a prophet. Speaking for God, he is claiming to be God. Then he goes on and he teaches us. We'll look at verses 25 through 27 in a moment. He shows us what he expects then from our lives. But I, I want to I step aside just for a moment and think about It's easy to point at the disciples and even the Jewish people that, that laid down their palms for him and sang Hosanna to him. And in a few days, they're going to hang him on a cross and watch him die though they don't know it, for their own sins, well, we, we kind of tease, not tease, but we kind of give them a hard time. Like, how could they not see what Jesus was trying to do? But the truth is, if we were in their place, we were distracted by governments, or we were distracted by our prosperity, or we were distracted by our own success, or what we have or don't have, what we have to pay or not pay, we would have been probably looking for something different too. And we often do look for something different. We look for Jesus to relieve our physical selves, but not our spiritual selves. And you think about it, I want you, I want you to just break aside from all, one thing Dad always did. You remember he would step over here and say, I'm going to speak from this. And it doesn't mean that he's given his own opinion, not from Scripture. He's just saying, I want you to understand this. The Bible doesn't say this word for word, but this is what it means, whatever. I want you to let your brain come over to this side for a moment and just imagine for just a moment, Okay, this story is not told in Scripture, but imagine for a moment that that day that Jesus is brought into Jerusalem. Put yourself there. Hear the singing, hear the praising, the hustle and the bustle of different things and all that's going on. And imagine being a young boy or a young girl and hearing that from your window. They are singing Hosanna to the King of the Jews. Well, everybody knew that. The Jews didn't have a real king. They had kind of a puppet king, but there's no real king, and that king wasn't coming through Jerusalem. So what are they singing about when they say, Hosanna, the king? Let's say it's a little boy named Elijah, you know, and he, he comes home. Dad comes home from work that day, and he says, Dad, I saw today the, the, it was the most weird but amazing thing. There was people everywhere, and they were singing and talking and praising, and they laid this stuff in the streets, and they were throwing their coats on the ground, and this man came through, and they were singing about this king. What did they mean when they were singing about a king? And, and 
you know, he may sat him down and said, okay, well, let me explain this to you, Elijah, or whatever in your mind, whatever your little child's name is that you're imagining there with me together, okay? He sits him down. He says, well, let me explain. Here, we haven't had a real king in a long time. We kind of have a king under the Roman Empire, but for before that, there was three or four hundred years that we didn't have a king. So let me go all the way back, and God brought our people out of Israel, and actually, we're about to celebrate in a week or so, or a few days, we're about to celebrate this Passover feast, and it marks when Jesus, or excuse me, it marks when God uh, set us free from Egyptians, and, and, and we were able to kind of go out into our own country and nation, and God gave us our own land and our own place, and we had judges for a while, but they failed us as humans and different things, and we called for a king, and then there was a king. Who was that first king, Elijah? Elijah said, oh, it was Saul. Yeah, yeah, and then who was next? Oh, David. David was next. Who was next? Elijah. Oh, Solomon. Solomon was next. Oh, yeah, good. You've been listening in your history classes there. That's good. Okay, so they have this king, and then there's Saul failed as a king. He did okay. David was a great king, but even he failed, and we know the stories of David and how he failed, but he was a good king, and Solomon had all this wisdom, but he failed too. But let me tell you, God gave a promise to David one day and said, from your seed, from your line, there's going to be a king that rules eternally. And, and Elijah, want, that's what we're really looking for when we sing that song, we talk about those things. That's what we're looking for is a king one day that's going to come and set us free from all this, and he's going to rule forever and ever and ever and ever. That's what our God has promised because he's the greatest God. He is, he is the one and true God. And so and Elijah says, yeah, but what about that guy? Could he be that king? And they go back and forth for a minute. He said, okay, okay, okay. Tell you what, it's, you know, your kids just keep asking questions at bedtime to stay up. And he says, okay, it's time to go to bed. We'll talk about this in the morning, Elijah. Okay, so they get up, and now we're sitting at our table together, and Elijah says, hey, Dad, remember we were talking about that king thing, and, and there's this king. Could he be the king? And then he tries to avoid that question a little bit, because talking about Jesus, remember the Pharisees wanted to kill Lazarus just because he brought people to Jesus, and there was uh, a command not to talk really about Jesus, and a command by the Pharisees and the chief priests to bring Jesus in for questioning and for trial, and so He's trying to just avoid this topic of Jesus. And as he's speaking, he says, no, there's a, there's a king that is coming that is going to bring peace on this earth, and he's going to free us from these things. But, Dad, could it be him? He says, well, I mean, I guess if I think about it, no, it couldn't really be him. Well, why not, Dad? Well, because he, you know, he doesn't really have any servants, and he doesn't have any authority. He doesn't have a palace. He's not that we know of. He's not of a kingly line, and you know, he's not ruling anything. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have weapons. He's not setting anything up. He's a pretty humble guy. We don't even know where he lives or how he lives, and he just starts giving him reason after reason why Jesus is not that coming king. And there's times in our lives where we think through all the reasons that Jesus is not really the true king of our lives right now on this earth. Yeah, maybe he's coming one day. But the truth is, Jesus' kingdom and his kingship are different than everyone would have thought. These last few moments, I want you to think about this. Jesus is a different type of king and has a different type of kingdom. 
He's a different type of king in a lot of different ways. Think about just physically as he entered Jerusalem, he had a different type of transportation in two different ways. One, he's riding on a donkey. In fact, a kind of a small little donkey, like a young donkey that he's riding in on. You would expect the king to ride in in a chariot or some princely type of horse. And he's not riding in as a triumphant king, though it is a triumphant entry here. But he's, sort of, he's riding in more as a servant. He's riding more in in his humility. And in fact, it's very different. The interesting thing about the Jewish culture is what was expected of them, at least, at the end of uh, their journey to Jerusalem for the Passover. The men, or the male, everyone that was able was expected to walk the last portion of their uh, walk into Jerusalem. They They were kind of just expected. You're supposed to walk on your feet. And Jesus specifically says, go find me a donkey tied to this because I am not like everyone else. I am not coming as a normal human, as a normal man. He says, I'm going to ride. That, for time's sake, we won't go there, but Zechariah 9.9 is that prophecy. It says he's going to come riding on an ass's colt. That's why Jesus is saying, go get me a donkey. I want everyone to know the time has come. Your Messiah is here. He had a different type of demeanor. He didn't come in commanding. He came in serving. He had a different type of leadership, servant leadership. Jesus dealt much more with a towel and a bowl than he did a scepter and a throne. He had a different type of crown, crown made of thorns. He had a different type of coronation when he was lifted up, not to a throne, but on a cross. He had a different type of emphasis. We read a lot about kings. You read about their lives, but you read much about Jesus' death. In fact, the whole second half of the book of John is about the last week of his life, his death. He had a different type of emphasis. He had a different type of kingdom. And this is where we get off often in our day and in our minds. He had a different type of kingdom because he had a different type of control. He had a different type of goal for his kingdom. Not law that would crush, but grace that would extend. Not performance that would get you uh, a spot, but his own holiness and his own righteousness. He had a different type of citizen. We've already seen that. The Greeks, the Jews, the Romans. Why? Because he had a different type of citizenship. Think about how many kingdoms do you get invited into? You're kind of either born into a kingdom or you're beaten into a kingdom. Conquered one or the other. But Jesus says, I extend my kingdom to all people. I extend it and invite you all. In fact, he doesn't conquer them as his enemies. He conquers their sin and invites his enemies. Because the Bible says that we were at enmity with God. He invites his enemies into his own kingdom. So you see this paradox of Christ. He is a different king and he's a different kingdom. But let me finish for this last couple minutes by drawing our attention to those last few verses. Because we like the fact that he's a different type of king. And we like the fact that he has a different type of kingdom. But what we're not always excited about is he's called us to a different kind of life. Because he's a different king and because he rules a different kind of kingdom, he calls us to live a different kind of life within that kingdom. Notice, if you would, in verse number 25, He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, Let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. He goes on, says, Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Think about those two verses in verse 25 and 26. 
He does not call us to live a life like we would think or expect. As different of a king as Jesus is, and as different of a kingdom as he rules, he has called us to live that drastically of a different life from the kingdom of this world. We are excited that Jesus is not an earthly king, and we are excited that his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, but our lives within this kingdom, because his kingdom has already started on this earth, the kingdom of God. It's in our hearts and rules and reigns, and one day it will be the only kingdom in this universe. It's already begun. Yet we often live our lives as though we are part of an earthly kingdom. What earthly things can I possess? What earthly influence can I have? That's the priority. What earthly position can I gain? What earthly influence can I earn? And our focus is so much this earth that we have forgotten that God has called us to a different life in a different kingdom, serving a whole different type of king. And I wonder this morning, what is our focus on? Because if we're so excited that Jesus is different, why are we not excited enough to be different ourselves? What's different from your life and your lost co-worker's life? What's different between your life and your lost family member's life? What excites you? What opportunity have you called about? Think about this. Jesus' kingdom is different because he invites its citizens, us, to go out and get more citizens, to go and invite people to come into the family of that king, that different, wonderful king. He's called us to serve him and to serve him by bringing others to him with our own lives. I wonder how much of our talk is about this kingdom or God's kingdom. You think about in, in Romans, if you go through there sometime and read in Romans chapter 1, the things, the reasons that people had failed God. It was because they loved creation more than the Creator, and they believed a lie rather than the truth. And then the last thing it says, that they failed to even acknowledge their God. I wonder how many times, how many days go through in our lives and we just fail to acknowledge our King. Because He is a, should be a part of all of our lives. Someone compliments you and says, hey, you're doing a great job at this. How often do you speak of your God? You say, well, I mean, typing on a keyboard or making a sale, that's not the same. It says that all things are from Him, through Him, and in Him. What better opportunity do we have to be a witness for Christ than just simply to acknowledge our King in all that we do and say. You have a lovely home. Well, thank you. God has truly blessed us. And, and go, maybe the conversation gets, gets a little bit deeper. We love our home, but we're thankful. You know, uh, eternally, we know that this doesn't matter. And here's why it doesn't matter. You're, you're able to forgive a, a, a coworker, a friend, a family member for bitterness or some argument that you had. You say, you know, look, at the end of the day, this is going to go away quick. And in the blink of an eye, our lives will be over and none of it's going to matter in eternity. Why? Because let me tell you, I have a king in Jesus Christ that is eternal. Let me explain to you why I can let this go and be merciful. I can treat my business a whole different way. I can deal with my finances a whole different way. I can give whatever God calls me to give. I can give time. I can give effort. Why? Because this kingdom on earth is not even the real kingdom of my life. 
And the kings of this earth don't really rule me deeply. It's just a surface thing. And I can influence the world around me by serving a different king in a different kingdom because he's called me to a different life.